If the U.S. is to prevail in the world's strategic hotspots, the Defense Department will have to adopt some of the strategies China seems to be using successfully. That's according to my next guest, who has described a system of melding private capital and commercial technology into DOD's own acquisition system. Pete Newell is the CEO of BMNT Partners, and he joins me now. Pete, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be back. And I guess the threat of a Taiwan-related situation and this ongoing, what you call, I think correctly, a proxy war with Russia over Ukraine, much more than simply shipping stuff to someone and seeing what they do. It's more strategic than that. Tell us your central theme here that you have outlined in an essay at Defense News of this idea of a commercial blending and civil military integration. It starts with the premise that China will be the only winner on the war in Ukraine. The concept of a proxy war gets debated by people with political aspirations right and left. We are using some of the cream of the crop of our weapon systems and our industrial might to support Ukraine in a battle with what should have been a pure competitor. And the Chinese are watching that battle play out as very astute observers of the performance of the systems and the tactics and the combinations. <laughs> and they're looking at Taiwan. And have a really good understanding of how this plays out and have an opportunity and the capacity, which is more dangerous, to actually build solutions that make our advances completely irrelevant. And they have the ability to harness what I would call a whole nation approach to do that in a time frame that is vastly faster than us. That's really dangerous to us. So they're seeing this slog that this Russian-Ukraine war has devolved into, and they see the United States, we can't even replace howitzer shells fast enough to get the supplies up, let alone the big stuff, the complicated, takes years to build stuff. And so is it a matter of Chinese agility here? And they're seeing what it would actually take to win a thing like this, which is different from what we're sending to try to win a thing like this. And I don't call it a numbers game. I think the Chinese can do the calculus of the expenditure rates and our ability to refresh stockpiles of things. But more importantly, they are having an opportunity to look at how the systems are employed so that, you know, if they do it right, they can negate the use of a system by coming up with a completely different set of technologies or a completely different set of operating concepts. The operating concepts are probably more dangerous because we can't see them until they actually show up on the battlefield. The Chinese, for the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, have really been focused on this whole-of-nation approach to the nexus of commercial capacity and military capacity and how to generate things at scale at speed. And that's where I think that you know we have this terrible, painful conversation in the United States is we know how to do scale. But we don't know how to do scale at speed when the scale is something other than what we were doing. So would an example of that be, say, to compare World War II, and there were about 30,000 four-engine bombers built in a period of about three years that we could just throw all over the world, maybe 40,000, whereas a Patriot missile bank takes years to construct, and you give one away, you've got a gap you can't fill next week. Correct. I, and I think that there are just tons of examples coming out of World War II, whether it's the Higgins boat that was developed for the landings in France or the bombers or even radar and, and systems like that that were built fairly rapidly because 
commercial folks were recruited to the effort and they, you know, converted commercial systems to do that. There's a great debate of whether we have the capacity in the United States to do today what we did in World War II. We're speaking with Pete Newell. He's CEO of BMNT Partners. Now, let me make an analogy. When the COVID came out, everyone thought we would need tens of thousands of respirators or ventilators, whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. We didn't, but nevertheless, some industries that had never made ventilators managed to produce them in a matter of weeks, and they could turn them out in scale like Ford Motor Company which also made bombers, you know, even though it hadn't been an aircraft company. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yes and no. I, I mean, that, that's a, I don't say a great lightweight example of the types of things that will have to be done. Ford didn't step up to the plate and say, we're here to make respirators. There was a lot of back and forth between the president, Congress, and other people who said, you either do it or we're going to revert to a couple of the, the things that we have that can make you do it. Let's take unmanned systems. You know, the Navy has done some tremendous work, as there are others with, you know, Task Force 59 and, and they're producing these things. We don't have shipyards today that can build thousands of unmanned surface and subsurface systems. They don't exist in the United States today. The Chinese, on the other hand, not only can do it, but they can redo their shipyards to do all kinds of things. So that's the, the type of scale that, it, you know, we're thinking about. And I had this conversation with the CNO not too long ago, and when I posed that question to him, he, he looked at me and said that the industry is going to have to do that because we, the Navy, don't have the capacity to build shipyards of that type. Yet we know that's the direction the technology and capacity is going to go. So when you look at the technologists and the venture capital folks and they don't call it the androids of the world, you have to say, okay, it's great is who's going to be the SpaceX of boats? Because yes. it's not going to be built inside the U.S. government. It's going to come from the commercial side. Right, and that then bumps into the acquisition system, which we know all the issues around that, and coupled with that is the budgeting system and the disbursement system and all of those kind of sclerotic systems that have been yeah. built up since the 1960s. So maybe that's the crux of the issue, the use of, as you call it, private capital in military use or that kind of fusion, what would that look like in the United States? First and foremost is the system prevents DOD in particular from adequately signaling where the big bets need to be made in terms of, of commercial capacity. They're good at signaling where the big bets need to be made in hypersonics or, or things like that, but they're not good at signaling where the bets need to be made and things that will be largely a commercial endeavor that increase U.S. capacity to do something. Part of that is because the commercial world looks at money across the table as signaling. You know, the way the system built today, there's not a program executive office for things that aren't programs of record. Well, what about so these? Legally, uh... Even if they say they want to do it, they can't do it. But what about these innovation units and these types of AFWorks and SoftWorks and Defense Innovation Unit and all the armed services have a WORKS. They spell it W-E-R-X. Isn't that where that's supposed to happen? You know, they own the front end of the pipeline. They are increasing the number of things we have the opportunity to grow. But that didn't change. At, at some point, we hit the acquisition system. And the, no kidding, what's the requirement? How are we going to scale it? How many years are we going to buy it over? So it's like increasing 
the volume of water you're trying to shove through the same garden hose. And don't get me wrong, we needed to increase that volume. Now we need to increase the size of the hose to get the velocity we need to actually get things out the other end. I'm not saying replace the hose. I actually am saying replace the hose. Add another hose. The current acquisition system does what it does for a reason, and it does it really well, and it's not bad. We're just asking it to do something that it's not built to do. We need to keep the current system to do things like build stealth bombers and build tanks and build aircraft carriers. But all that other stuff that we need to get done needs a separate system of not just acquisition, but how they hire people, how they move money, how they contract things, and the scale and capacity which they're allowed to contract. It's just a completely different set of rules. And you have a series of recommendations for Congress to make this happen. Absolutely. And I think, and I won't do them in order, right? I think, you know, first and foremost, it was a mistake to move the Defense Innovation Unit out of the Secretary of Defense purview and into RE. And simply by moving DIU's reporting to the SECDEF did not fix the problem because DIU's manning and its budget is still coming from RE. The Office of Strategic Capital, if paired with DIU and given the authorities necessary to do not just prototyping, but actually small-scale production and the ability to combine capital and do that signaling would be hugely powerful. So imagine, and actually the services need the same thing. So the question I ask folks is, you know, about the Task Force 59, there's some great successes out there in Bahrain with technologies and systems. And the way that people look at it, they say, well, great, we need more Task Force 59s. And the answer was no. We need to know what happens next. What are you doing with the technologies and the systems to show that you can actually scale their deployment? Not scale more exercises, but actually scale the deployment of those systems. Can you produce them? Can you integrate them? Can you come up with the operating concept to do that? Nobody owns that work. It's all diffused back out in the current system. The One of the other recommendations is recognize that the DIUs and the Naval Lexus and African folks are still fighting an uphill battle to get the attention of senior leaders, to get the budgets they need, to get the freedom of operations they need, largely because they're not represented at the table where the resources are carved up. So one of the recommendations we made is create a new undersecretary whose job it is to do innovation and commercialization who has the budget and the authority to create a different system or a different set of rules and to operate it alongside the current system. And how does private capital come into this? Because the government has, say, other transaction authority to buy prototypes and look into some of these things, as you said earlier, to fill the pipeline initially with good ideas that could be scaled. But then you've got the PPPE, the whole program budgeting allocation process, that takes years before something can be scaled and the money to do it. And in the meantime, what's yeah. the incentive for a contractor? So how does the capital and the financing work into this? Look what we've done with the EV world by providing tax incentives for people to buy American-made electric vehicles. That created a fairly significant shift in the operating behavior of GM, Ford, Tesla, and a whole bunch of other people. But you realize is there is no tax incentive for people to do defense commercial work, none. 
in my mind, um, we're missing this massive opportunity by providing the same types of incentives. I go back to the comment the CNO made of industry is going to have to build a shipyard that allows us to build thousands of attributable unmanned systems. Well, that's not going to happen without a solid business case. We're probably not going to happen without some type of tax incentive for people with commercial capital to do. We're not talking about it that way, though. And China does operate that way. Yes. Has been operating that way for some time, which means even the day we decide to do it, we're still behind. Because they have a command and control economy controlled by the party to the point where if they don't like someone or someone in the bureau there doesn't like a certain capitalist, the ant group guy, the next thing you know, they could be in jail or you know yep. they could be confiscated. I mean, we don't want that type of model either, right? No, I, I was going to say, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying be like the Chinese. I'm saying be better than the Chinese. We're not going to beat the Chinese by copying them. We need to be better, faster, more agile, and actually make changes. We were better than everybody in the 80s and 90s, and even you know in the early part of the 2000s. But that's not guaranteed anymore. And the underlying assumption, too, here maybe is that the future will be in some semblance like it was in the past, where volume and numbers have their own weight. And despite all of the technology advantages and stealth and use of 5G and whatever, there's a million of them, you still need lots of stuff to throw at the other side, and you need a way to scale up that stuff. It might be smarter, it might be more precise than the old stuff, but it still has to be a lot of it. And in this case, speed counts in a way that it never has before. The speed of delivery counts more than it used to, and that's the part that the current system just can't seem to handle. Right. I need 10,000 drones that explode, or I need 200 submarines that are unmanned next year. And under the current system, it would be, if we're lucky, in 10 years, we could have it. Yes, correct. So I I go back to the Higgins boat example, which is, you know, one of my favorites is, I don't know how we would do that in the United States today. But you remember that, you know, the thousands that they had to build and how fast and how fast they went through the design and deployment. and, And it's like, the move from the early um, Hellcat aircraft to the P-51 Mustang and the Corsair. But it's just crazy how fast that happened and then how fast we ramped up production up. Right. And there's a flip side to that, too, or a post-doc side to that also, is that some of the technologies developed for those items did have extensive commercial application after the Absolutely. war. Absolutely. And I think it'll be even more so today. I think the... We were more and more taking things that are more uh, completely developed from a commercial standpoint and integrating them into operating concepts as a whole than we have in the past. And I think that, you know, one of the other recommendations, and I want to say that I'm opposed to the larger integrators out there because I think they still have a role. Lockheed Martin, North Grumman, like uh, L3, um, they are the mastered integrators of complex things into complex operating concepts. And there is a more significant role in doing that at speed than there ever was in the past. So this isn't get away from them and do something completely different. It is give them the things that they need at speed to actually become better at what they've done in the past. Pete Newell is CEO of BMNT Partners. Sounds like an urgent topic. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Tom, thanks so much for the invite to come back. I always enjoy our conversations. As do I. We'll post this interview along with a link to his defense news essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to 
that Alabama environment. What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. 
if you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.